I on now? I am. Great. Thank you. <clears throat> it's, it's a joy to be here. Thank you. I have uh, loved being here this weekend, spent time with, uh, with Hobson and get to meet your elders and some of the members of the church here. That has been a real joy for me. So thank you for your hospitality to me and your kindness you've shown me this weekend that I've been here. Uh, <clears throat> if you uh, have your Bible, if you'll turn back open to Titus chapter 2, that's where we're going to be spending our time this morning. And as you do that, I have a burden that I'd like to share with you that I that is growing with the ministry work that I'm doing. Just tell you a little bit about myself. I was, I've been a pastor for 25 years, and it, and practical shepherding this ministry that I lead just slowly grew out of our local church ministry, and eventually grew to a point where I I started leading this full time which is what I've been doing for the last year, which allows me to travel more and be here places like this on Sundays because I'm not preaching at the same church every Sunday, so I'm grateful for that. But I get to work with hundreds of pastors and churches really all over the world through this work I get to do. And I'm seeing a common growing trend that troubles me, and that is churches that are seeking to only have one generation that's present in them. So this usually shows up in two different ways, commonly. The first are old historic churches that have been around some for hundreds of years that were vibrant at one time, but difficult times have caused them to, to slowly decline, and, and many of them die. In Southern Baptist life, there is a thousand churches that close every year. And that was actually, that's a number that was pre-pandemic. So who knows what those numbers will be uh, coming out in the next year or so. A lot of churches closing, a lot of churches declining. And many times in these kinds of churches, you will find those of the older generation present, and that's all. On the other side, you'll find a lot of church plants that are being new churches that are oftentimes being planted by younger folks. And they go to a city or a town, and they want to plant a church and, and reach people with the gospel, and they have a lot of energy and excitement to do that. And they go in and then they target a certain group of people to try to reach to build that church, which is commonly people like them. And they go and build a church there. And those churches are often end up being made up of the younger generation. And here's what I have found as I work with both of these kinds of churches. They actually agree on something. They believe the hindrance to the ministry of their church is the other one. And what I want us to look at this morning is I believe that the Apostle Paul gives a very different design of what the church is supposed to be. And it's one that is to be made up of not one generation, uh, but many, and people that are even different than us. And so I want us to see that in the book of Titus, uh, chapter 2. And in a moment, I'm actually going to read the whole chapter. I appreciate that we got to read the first eight verses, but I want I'm going to we're going to look at the whole uh, chapter, all 15 verses, so I'd like to read them uh, all together. Before we do that, we're diving, diving into the book of Titus, and I, and I know your steady diet is, is to ha be in a book of the Bible typically, so I want to be able to jump in and give us some context here. Paul, the Apostle Paul is writing to his young protege, Titus, uh, in the ministry, and he writes this letter to explain to him how to set up these churches, these new churches that were being started in a place called Crete. And we see that in chapter 1. The main message of the book of Titus is this. The gospel of Jesus Christ that we believe 
will affect our behavior. So the gospel we believe will affect our behavior. That's the main idea of the book of Titus. And it, if you read this, these three chapters, go home this afternoon, read them in full. It's beautifully woven in and out that he, says, he gives that instruction on how Titus is to set up the churches. And then he says it's the gospel that empowers us to be able to do that. And then he gives more instructions. And then he says, by the way, it's the gospel that empowers us, the spirit of God indwelling in us to be able to do these things. And you see that all throughout these, these three chapters. It's quite marvelous the way it is, it's set up. Take your eyes to chapter 1. <clears throat> the first half of chapter 1 is Paul writing to Titus, and he says, set things up in Crete in this way. And the very first thing he says is he describes on who should serve as pastor, as elders. I think we'd all agree that's probably pretty important. And that's where Paul starts with Titus. And he says that these, these elders are to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict it. And then the second half of chapter 1, he describes what he calls these rebellious men who do this. He describes and they profess to know God, but they deny him by their deeds. And remember, the, the purpose of the book of Titus is that the gospel you believe will affect your behavior. So he says the first half is this is who shepherds and cares for the flock, the churches. And this is who the, the elders, the pastors, are supposed to protect the churches from, these rebellious men. So he establishes that in chapter 1. And then we move to, to chapter 2, and Paul pivots and addresses everybody in the church. So, it doesn't matter who you are this morning. There's something for everybody today, just so you know. Because when he shifts in chapter 2, he addresses these different groups. He gives categories of people that you saw when we read the first part earlier. He gives categories of these people, and all of us, in one way or another, you'll see we fall into one of these categories, which means if we have been, in, if we have been transformed by the power of Christ through faith in him, then we are empowered to then carry this out in serving the local church. So I trust we'll see that as we dig into this chapter. So let's be, let's, let me read all this chapter, and once if you'll follow along with me, Titus chapter 2, starting in verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled, showing yourselves in all respects to be a a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, 
the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This is God's word, amen? Amen. If you're taking notes, here is the main idea of this sermon. God's design for the local church is a multi-generational, multi-ethnic local church. God's design for the local church is a multi-generational, multi-ethnic church. If you take your eyes to Titus chapter 2, it's divided up into two main parts I'd like to show you. The first part is verse 1 through 10. Verses 1 through 10, you'll notice, describes the different kinds of people who are assumed in these new churches in Crete, their roles, and then how they display the gospel in, in the local church. The second part is verses 11 through 15. Take your eyes there. That demonstrates what the gospel actually is that transforms these different groups to then empower them to do what was instructed. So in other words, the transforming power of the gospel is displayed in these churches through the presence of godly examples of these different groups who play these roles that they were instructed to play. Now let me make an important note about this passage. When Paul writes this, he is not instructing different kinds of churches. In other words, he's not writing to a, a, a church of just old women and then another church that's just younger men, and then another church that's just younger women. I want you to notice, he's assuming each one of these groups exists in every one of these churches. He did not caveat at the beginning of chapter 2, if there are old women in the church, have them do this. If there are younger men in the church, then, then have them. He is assuming that each one of these groups he lists here are in every one of these churches that are being established in Crete. And so the transforming power of the gospel is displayed through the presence of, I want to give you three categories of people that Paul describes here in these opening verses. Three different groups of people. Number one, there are old and young in the church. Old and young. You probably noticed that. Look down at verses two and three. The older... It says are to teach and train the, the younger. The younger are mentioned in verses 4 through 8. And take your eyes to verse 4. The older women, it's directly said of the older women to do this, and it is implied by the, the common godly character that is described by the older and the younger men. Not to mention that Paul is writing as the apostle to a younger pastoral protege in Titus, instructing him, mentoring him, teaching him. This, is, this principle is all throughout this letter. So there's old and young in every church, and Paul is giving instructions around that. Second category of people, men and women. Notice that also in the first eight verses. There are men and women. They're both mentioned here, and notice they both play unique and distinct roles in the local church. Let me also highlight something of importance in regard to context. Paul is writing this in a very scandalous way in the first century. In other words, 
Before the first century, women were considered second-class citizens. And yet Paul's writing here as if women are equally valuable to men in the local church. Now that hopefully won't surprise us. I hope we already assume that's the case. But in the first century, that was a scandalous thing to write. And he's writing, showing though there are distinct roles, that men and women have equal value in every local church and play an equally important role in every church. So there's men and there's women. Also, notice also in the specifics that he writes about men and women, it's almost like Paul understands some of the sinful struggles that men have that maybe women don't have as much. There's sinful struggles that women have that maybe men don't have as much. And he's writing these instructions around that because he's trusting they are acting out of the Spirit of God that indwells them to be able to do these things. So there's old and young. There's men. There's women. There's a third category we see, and that is bondservant and master. Take your eyes down to verses 9 and 10. And the bondservant are given specific instructions to submit to their masters and everything and how they're to do it in a godly manner. Now, there's really not a close modern equivalent to this complicated, uh, involved relationship that we see in the, in the first century in our modern day. Probably the closest comparison, though it's not equal, is a boss-employee type relationship that someone would have. In other words, this relationship of bond-servant and master, it had uh, authority built into it. Uh, it had a relationship that was built into it. Uh, but there were also complications around this. There were issues of socioeconomic diversity, even racial diversity around this. Here's the point of verses 9 and 10 for us to understand the category Paul is addressing in the church. He's saying the rich and the poor are in the same churches. He's saying the somebodies and the nobodies of that society are actually in the same church together. There's a lot wrapped up in that. That's ultimately what he is saying. And Paul assumes, in these three categories of groups, Paul assumes all of these are present. And he is writing to Titus to instruct the old and the young and the men and the women, even the bondservants and the masters, how they conduct themselves in a way that magnifies the power of the gospel in the church. Why is he doing this? Why do these things go together? Why does part one of verses one through 10 and, and part two of 11 through 15 have to go together? Because I don't know if you've ever noticed, but these categories of people don't get along a lot of times, do they? It's in, it's not, it is not uh, natural for us to get along with people who are very different than us. I think it's impossible for all these different groups of people to actually love one another and sacrifice for one another and be committed to one another like we're to be in a local church if it was not for, look at verse 11, the grace of God appearing and bringing salvation. That's why that's so important that that comes after verses 1 through 10. Jesus Christ came to earth and he gave himself, verse 14, gave himself for us. He, he lived a perfect life and he died on the cross bearing the wrath of God for our sins and then he was raised from the dead three days later. That he might do what? Look down at verse 14. He gave himself for us 
to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself, what? A people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. What are the good works that Paul is talking about there? He's talking about verses 1 through 10, what he's instructing in that particular place. It is when old and young and men and women, even bond servants and masters, those very different from one another in race and socioeconomic status and all those kinds of things, come together in one church and they are united around Christ and their love for the church. And that's the design that Paul is writing about and says to Titus, every one of these churches that are being established in Crete, instruct them that this is their role. And to do this magnifies the power, the unifying power of the gospel of all kinds of different people coming together to the community and to the world. So the remainder of our time, what I'd like to do is, is draw some implications out of this passage for you, for this church. So if you're taking notes, five ways. I'm going to give you five ways this church can pursue this design, God's design for the church that we see here. And here's the beautiful thing about this. This design, this is the wonderful thing about Scripture. This is the design of the first century as the early church is being established, and it is the same design for us in 2022. And it doesn't matter what country we're in, what culture we're in, what language we speak. This is the design all around the world of what the church is supposed to look like, including here. And as I said before, there's something for everybody. So here we go. Five ways this church can pursue this design. Number one, the older are to seek and mentor the younger. The older are to seek and mentor the younger. So older men and women in this room, I want you to know I had the privilege to pastor some amazing elderly members of our church for years and years. And I learned a lot from them. And one of the things that I learned from them, and many of these people were people who had been members for 30 and 40 and 50 years. They, they were the ones that were leading and running all the ministries when the church was really thriving. And they helped me understand that as they got older and they physically became limited in the things they could, could and couldn't do, that they begun to feel useless in the church because they couldn't do the things that they used to be able to do. They didn't know what their place was. And that really helped me understand some of the struggles that they had in, in our church as they moved into their 80s and, and 90s even. Some of you may be able to relate to that. Some of you maybe have been here a long time. And age is hitting a place where you physically cannot do all the things that you used to do in the church. And I just want you to know that there is still, even despite that, a really important role for you to play in this church. And Paul has outlined it very clearly. It is to seek and mentor the younger. Well, how do you do that? Well, it's actually not as hard as you think. Simply be available for the younger in this church. Pursue them. I mean, invite them over to your home to ask them questions, learn about their life, get to know them. Just get together and read Scripture and pray together in some way. 
take an interest in them, just pursue them in some way. Now, if you pursue them and they don't respond well to you, well, we are young and foolish. We need to learn from you. You need to keep pursuing us. Do you notice I put myself in the younger category just then? I don't see any age break here, so you can take it up with me later, but I don't see it in the text, so... The younger need to learn from you, whether they know it or not. So pursue them. Teach them. It's important to be available for them, for them to learn from you. If you don't think you have anything to offer them, I want you to know, I disagree with you. But you know what? My opinion doesn't matter at all. Apparently, the Apostle Paul disagrees with you if you think that. Seek and mentor the younger, to pour into them, to teach them. So that's number one. The older, to seek and mentor the younger. Number two, the younger are to learn from and care for the older. The younger are to learn from and care for the older. So those who would fall into the younger category in this room this morning, let me first say that your first sinful response to the older is that you do not think you have anything to learn from them. We can agree on something, though. They probably cannot help you with your iPhone. We can agree on that. But there is so much more they can teach you that you need to learn from the older in this room. I had the privilege of, of uh, pastoring an amazing woman. Her name was Tilly Robert. Tilly lived to be 106 years old. She was the 12th oldest person in the, in the country when she passed and to, went to be with Jesus. She was like three months shy of her 107th birthday. And Tilly was amazing. She had her, she had her mind and sharp wit uh, all the way to the end. She drove until she was 103 years old, which we thought was, all of us thought it was a good idea that Tilly didn't drive anymore at 103 years old. We had, matter of fact, at the church, we had a special parking space for Tilly, that, so it was the easiest spot, you know, to pull direct, directly in and then to be able to back out and then and go home. And by the way, if anybody ever got upset they didn't have their, their own parking space, I promised them if they lived to be 103, I'd give them their own parking space. <laughs> Nobody ever took me up on it. But. I spent a lot of time with Tilly. She was a dear woman. And I want you to know, out of all the time we spent together, Tilly did not teach me anything about the atonement. She didn't teach me and even convince me differently of my end times views and all of our conversations. But I learned a whole lot from Tilly about life, about suffering, about how to walk with Jesus for decades and decades through difficulty. I learned a lot from her about marriage. She was widowed in her 60s and never remarried. She practically lived another life as a widow. And she taught me a lot about how to walk with Jesus through difficulties, and how to have a strong and simple faith. One of my favorite times with Tilly is she had a group of ladies in the church for decades. They had got lunch together and went somewhere for lunch or had lunch together for decades. Well, they all got in their 80s. They got in their 90s, and none of them were driving anymore. And Tilly thought it was probably wise for her to not be the chaperone for all those ladies in, in her car. So... I would periodically go borrow the van from my wife for the day 
And then I would go by and pick all these ladies up in the van, load them up in the van, like five or six of them. And I'd take them to lunch wherever they'd want to go. They always wanted to go to Cracker Barrel. I'm like, okay, fine, we'll go to Cracker Barrel, you know? It's always where they wanted to go. We're sitting in Cracker Barrel waiting for our food. And you know those, you know those creepy antique farm tools that hang on the wall everywhere? I'm a city kid. Freaked me out when I would see those. Tilly talked me through what every one of those tools were as we're sitting there because she grew up on a farm and she's old enough to remember when there weren't cars. And I learned a ton. I was just fascinated. I love history. I was just fascinated by all of Where else am I going to learn something like that? Younger folks, there, there's a wealth of knowledge in the older members of this church. And just trust me on that. You won't learn from them unless you take time to be with them. So if they approach you and seek you out, respond well to them. Allow time to go and, spend, and be with them. Learn from them. I assure you that you will hit a point in your life where you will regret having not taken advantage of learning from them when they are gone. So the older are to seek and mentor the younger. The younger are to learn from and care for the older. Number three, be content-driven with music. You're like, where'd that come from? I didn't see that in the text. It's there. Trust me, I'll show you. Be content-driven with music. See, before I went to be the pastor of Auburndale Baptist Church, which I was pastor over there for 17 years, I spent almost 10 years of my ministry doing associate pastor work, uh, doing a lot of music, and in some of them, larger churches. And here's one of the things that I was taught in these larger churches where the music really drove the, the, the church, not the preaching of the word. And that is that you do music in a certain way to try to appeal to the group of people you're trying to reach. The problem I learned in doing ministry in this environment is that when you do that, you alienate everybody else in the church when you try to cater to one group. And here's the other thing I learned. It really doesn't work that well on top of that. You really don't even reach the people you're trying to reach by picking a music style that they like and you try to pursue it. So there's a lie that many of us are told, I'm not sure if you've heard it or not, but it's that young folks won't come to your church if the music isn't hip, cool, and contemporary. In our church, I took a very traditional, I was a dying Southern Baptist church when I went there 18 years ago now, and the average age of the church was 80 years old, and they sang hymns from the Baptist hymnal, and I went there and Ten years later, the average age of the church was about 35 years old, and we still just sang hymns out of the Baptist hymnal. Here's the thing. Music is so often in a multi-generational church in trying to seek that. When we focus on style instead of content, we divide the church. And by the way, it is, uh, if we asked everybody, what's what kind of music did you listen to this past week? That'd be a fascinating conversation probably, wouldn't it? What kind of music did everybody listen to? And everybody's going to have all kinds of different music. And by the way, that is something to celebrate. You're, you're different from each other. That, that's good. You're not supposed to like the same kind of music. Here's the problem. When we make style an issue in the church, we're saying everybody has to like this kind of music. 
But when we focus on content, we're unified in what we sing. I bet we all agree on the wonderful words we sang this morning. Regardless on how the music was played, that we agree on the words. Where do you find this in Titus 2? Because Paul is advocating for old and young to be in the same church, loving each other, serving one another. And you and I both know that music is one of the main ways the generations divide in a church. So how do we unify? How do we do what, what Paul is advocating for here? We're old and young, and men and women come together in the same church. Well, we focus on what we agree on, and that is the content of the truth that we sing. So be content-driven with music. Here's a great test question for each of you as you every time you leave church on Sunday to evaluate the health of this. Do people leave a service here at this church talking more about how the music was done or what, more about what great truths we sang about? I have a 10-hour drive ahead of me, Lord willing, this afternoon when I drive home. And I can already tell you, though the music was done well, I will be thinking about the truth that we sang about today that moved me, that gives me hope, that reminds me of the hope that I have in Christ. Number four, embrace all kinds of diversity in your church. Embrace all kinds of diversity in your church. I will acknowledge to you as we look at Titus chapter two, look back at verse one through eight again. The majority of the first eight verses is focused on a multi-generational uh, dynamic. But verses 9 and 10, it's why it's, verses 9 and 10 are so important that they are there. Because it's not just about generational diversity. It's also about all kinds of other diversity. And that's what we see in verses 9 and 10. Take your eyes there again. That is what not verses 9 and 10 represents in that relationship of the bondservant towards the master. And why is this important to not just focus on generational diversity, but all kinds of diversity, because the eternal picture in the book of Revelation is that every tribe and tongue and people and nation will be gathered around the throne worshiping Christ forever. And if that's the eternal picture, we get a little snapshot here on earth when our churches reflect being different from one another, and yet we come together in agreement on these great truths. So embrace all kinds of diversity in your local church. And if you're going to embrace all kinds of diversity in your local church, you need to be prepared to welcome the strangest person from you that walks through those doors. Now, are you prepared to do that? I can remember when our church really began to, to turn and, and go up more healthy direction years later, that... We had, we were in a very urb, dense urban context in south end of Louisville, Kentucky, and we had homeless people who started trickling into the church. And about five years before that, I'm not sure how they would have been treated. But the Lord had been at work, and homeless people started coming into our church, and they were being loved and welcomed by people in the church. It's because God had done a work to prepare people to embrace whoever walks in. And I want to challenge you to be prepared to love and welcome whoever walks through these doors. Because the more different you are from each other, the more the gospel is displayed to the world. Number five, the last one. Number five. 
Trust in the power of the gospel to unite you. Trust in the power of the gospel to unite you. Look down at verses 11 through 14 one more time for me. It's clear that the gospel is what empowers different groups of people coming together and being in the same church. And it cannot, they cannot come together in any other way other than in the power of the gospel. So if the gospel is that powerful, we have to trust that the power of the gospel is powerful enough to unite you and the people who are most different from you in this church. This is probably best illustrated. Years ago, we did a work day at our church. We had a big, old, historic uh, building that was, that's a lot of work to keep up with, but beautiful to have. So a couple times a year, we would have something called a work day. You guys may have these things as well. Saturday morning, we'd have, invite everybody from the church to come together for about four hours. We have all these tasks and fix this and clean this up and, and try to have a, everybody in the church come together to keep up with the building. So there was a Saturday morning we did this. There were three people in particular who came to that work day. The first guy who came, his name is Mike. He's 30 years old, he's single, and he's Scottish. He was in Louisville as a student. He found our church, became a real blessing to our church. But he came to the work day, and he wanted to work outside where all this beautiful landscaping around the church is because he's from Scotland. It's beautiful there if you haven't been before. And he is a lands, was a landscaper, did it as a living while he was in Scotland. So he kind of knows what he's doing. There were two other people who came to the workday, Howard and May, longtime members of the church. They've been there 50 years plus years. He's a deacon in the church. And they came in. They too wanted to work in the landscaping outside. You know why? They planted most of the trees and the shrubs that they found outside in the church. So naturally, they're going to want to go outside and work. Now, I had a little concern about this, as you can imagine, because Mike is like, professional landscaper from Scotland, of all places. And Howard and May have a lot of personal attachment to the bushes and shrubs and trees outside. And I wasn't sure how well Mike might receive instruction from them about how to trim the shrubs and the trees. And let's just say that May loves to give instructions on how to trim the shrubs and the trees <laughs> outside. Oh, there's one other thing. May and Howard are from Kentucky, and they sound like they're from Kentucky, and Mike is from Scotland, and really sounds like he's from Scotland. In fact, he's from Glasgow, and in Glasgow, if you go home and you've lost some of your accent when you come to America, like his brothers would beat him up. I mean, it's like a really shameful thing to come back and lose your accent, so he was really trying to hold on to it tight. So I send all three of them out, just let's see what happens. So they go out and work all morning. Everybody comes in for lunch, and Mike comes to me. He says, hey, I got I to gotta leave, but let's walk outside. Let me show you some of the work we did. And we walk outside. He shows me some of the, a lot of the work they did in the shrubs. And Mike, as he's out there showing me, just went on and on about how much he loved working with Howard and May. He said, you know, I learned so much about the history of the church while we're out here working because we're working in these bushes, and May is telling me about what's going on in the church like 30 years ago when these shrubs were planted. And, and then we're trimming this tree over here, and, then she's telling me about all the fights happening in the church like 20 years ago when this tree was planted. And I just learned all this amazing history of the church. He loved it. So he left. But I hadn't talked to May yet until the next morning. She finds me in between Sunday school and church. She walks up. She has this big smile on her face. 
She says, boy, I like that Mike. He is a good worker. I have no idea what he's saying, but I, I like him a whole lot. Let me ask you a question. Do you see the power of the gospel in that? Two people, different age, different gender, different nationality, different socioeconomic class. And I assure you, they could find all kinds of ways to dislike and despise the other. But they were united on two things and two things only. Their love for Christ and their love for our church. And with spiritual eyes that only the Holy Spirit can give, gave them spiritual eyes to be able to look upon the other, see their value, and see God's design. So brothers and sisters, we, we need each other and the differences in each of us to display the gospel to this community and to the world. So I have two final uh, applications I want to give you. Number one, I want to encourage you to celebrate the evidence of this design that already exists in this church. Celebrate that design. It is a sign of health and God at work that this design already exists in some ways. I look around this room and I see, I see older members. I see younger. I see people in between. I see men. I see women. I see boys. I see girls. I'm sure there's socioeconomic diversity represented in this room. Friends, celebrate what you indeed already have. Because we put way too much stock on evaluating our church, on how many people are here, how much money we have. And that is just not the way God evaluates the health and the impact of a church. I'm just not convinced of that. But when I see this as his design, I think he looks at what I had just mentioned. That there are men and women and old and young in this room and there's a diversity of people different than each other. And as you love and care for one another and come together every Sunday morning and you sing songs that you all agree on the truth that you sing. Christ is magnified in that, in this community and throughout the world. Celebrate what God's doing here, seen in that design. Number two, be challenged to grow where you need to grow as an individual. Be challenged to grow where you need to grow as an individual. Look back on those five ways that I mentioned. Where, remember I said there's some for everybody. Everybody falls into one of those categories at least. What is the Holy Spirit nudging you to do in response to this word? If you're older, it might be to pursue that younger person in the church that you've been afraid to pursue, even though God's laid them on your heart. But you don't know how they were going to respond to you, so you just have been afraid to. Or a younger person to pursue that older member, just taking a risk that they actually might have something to, to teach you. For some of you, it might be building a relationship with your neighbor who's really different than you. And because they're so different than you, you have not wanted to go talk to them or any, build any kind of relationship. You, you've been afraid to. Maybe for you, it's to reach out to somebody who's very different than you, try to build a relationship, to try to be able to share Christ with them. Whatever it is, can you imagine if every member in this church this morning heard from God on something that you, one thing, one small step, for you to take in pursuing this design 
what God could do in this church in the next year or two if each of you would step into that. So I'd like to take a moment and pray for each of you in that way as I close. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and how clear it is of your design. Lord, forgive us in the ways that we have evaluated our churches in ways that man has created, but, but you do not. So Lord, help us see with spiritual eyes today your beautiful design of your church, the way that you bring people from all kinds of backgrounds to come and be saved through the blood of Christ and bring them together in one local church and that you indeed have been at work in this church for many, many years in that way. Lord, help these dear people to celebrate what you've done here as they celebrate each other. And we pray, Lord, that you would move in our hearts and how we can step into this design and take risks in a way that would honor you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.